Genesis chapter 8, and good evening to you all. But Lord Jesus, as we come into your word tonight, we pray again that you'd help us to see you. You are the exact representation of the nature of God. You came as Emmanuel, God in the flesh. So we would be remiss, Lord, if we didn't look for you and seek to know you and, and make parallels to you. And so it's my prayer as we study Genesis chapter 8 that you, Lord Jesus, would be glorified in all these things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're two weeks away now from my favorite holiday. Any guesses? <laughs> kind of make it obvious for you. Thanksgiving, I love Thanksgiving. And it's not because of the food. I know some of you would say that, okay, I love the food, but that's not why I love the holiday. I just love the fact that it's the one time a year where nationally still we stop to give thanks to God. And to be thankful and to consider thankfulness, especially because God said, that's, that's my will for you. If you wanna know God's will for your life, this is the will of God for you, that you be thankful. That's the one verse in the Bible that describes that explicitly. And so Thanksgiving, I love Thanksgiving, and I wanna give you a psalm suggestion for the next couple of weeks to meditate on. A wonderful psalm approaching Thanksgiving and the next couple of weeks coming to Thanksgiving, and it's Psalm 136. I'm gonna read to you just a little bit of it. It's a 26-verse psalm, but the first three verses to start out, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then verse 23 of this psalm says, who remembered us in our low estate, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And the psalm ends, give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting. See, he remembers us. That's a remarkable statement, that God remembers us. My mother had a saying several years ago that she brought up. She said, when all the world forgets, there is a mother waiting still. She would quote that to me from time to time when I hadn't called in a couple of weeks. <laughs> But God is a God of remembrance. A primary reason for our thankfulness is that God remembers. Genesis chapter eight, verse one begins that way. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. I'll give you five things to jot down for Genesis eight tonight. And the first one is the remembrance of God. The remembrance of God, he is never one to forget. You may forget, I may forget. There are times, no doubt, in your life, as I know there are in mine, where I will get busy doing things and I will forget, as it were, God. I hate to say it, but I am not in 24-7 communion with Jesus. I wanna be. But sometimes hours will go by and suddenly I realize, I haven't been talking to you, Lord. I've been so busy over here doing this or that. God is not that way. He is not one to forget. And so when it says God remembered Noah, understand, first of all, it's an anthropomorphism. That is, it's using human terminology to try to describe what is not human or what is 
other than human or what is greater than human. So it's an anthropomorphic phrase. The Bible is an anthropomorphic book. I mean, the whole thing is, is about describing God, expressing to us Jesus, who came himself as the anthropomorphic ex- exemplification of God. Jesus explains to us that which we couldn't understand, understand otherwise, not completely. The Hebrews chapter one, verse three says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So to say God remembered doesn't mean he, like you or like me, he forgets and suddenly, oh, where is that ark? (laughs) Wow, we gotta find Noah. Somebody go looking for him. Where is he? And thought about him in 150 days. No, it's not about the forgetfulness of God. In fact, it's even written, God remembered Noah in the imperfect tense in the Hebrew, which literally would translate, God kept Noah in remembrance. God kept Noah in remembrance. God remembers. Childs in in Kidner's commentary says, God's remembering always implies, get this, his movement toward the object of his memory. I like that. To say God remembers isn't like Rick remembers. Well, when you say Rick remembers, it's because he's probably forgotten something. But when you say God remembers, it means that which he's kept in remembrance, he is now moving toward. He is now acting upon. God kept Noah in remembrance. And it's amazing to me to think about the memory or the remembrance of God because that massive barge that we call the ark was a tiny little speck of wood on the massive global floodwaters of the earth we would never be able to find it. Like a needle in a haystack on those churning waters was that, as big as it was, tiny little ark from a universal perspective. And yet God kept Noah in remembrance. That's the way God is. Exodus chapter two, verse 24, God heard their groaning. That is the groaning of the children of Israel. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had never forgotten it. But in his remembrance now, he moves toward Israel. Or I like Luke chapter one, verse 54, where Mary in the Magnificat, she sings, he has given help to Israel, his servants, in remembrance of his mercy. God didn't forget his mercy, but now he's moving on his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, Mary saying to Abraham and his descendants forever. And so that's the thing about God's remembrance is it causes him to move toward those he remembers. He's now moving toward Noah. He's acting upon Noah. Noah's been safe. Noah and the fam and the animals and the ark have been safe now through the whole journey and God is about to move again. The Lord remembered Noah. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. You ever think about that? How'd the flood water get cleaned up? A pipe bursts in your house, what do you do? You call service master or someone like that to come clean up the water damage. Who's gonna clean up the water damage? God sent a strong wind, great way to do it. Cause the water to recede, cause it to dry up, to to evaporate upward and to recede downward. And to do it, God sent a strong wind, which is a major deja vu because we're right back to a picture we have already seen in Genesis. 
What do you mean? God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. God sent a wind, a ruach. Ruach. Same word for wind is the word for spirit in the Hebrew, ruach. And God sent a wind. You could say God sent his spirit. In Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit or the ruach, the wind of God, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And now his spirit is moving over the surface of the waters again. So we're seeing a repeat action here, creation and then destruction and then the spirit moving over the waters before now a new creation, if you will, begins. A renewed earth. Once again, here's the spirit moving over the waters. Driving them back, ending the flood as the planet is about to experience renewal. Verse two, also the floodgates of the deep and the flood, uh, fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. Note those words, closed and restrained. That implies an action of another upon something. It was not just natural upheaval and seasonal settling, settling down. This is the spirit at work. God originally burst open the fountains of the deep he plowed through the floodgates of the sky and now his spirit closes and restrains. God acts again. He started the flood. He now ends the flood. Why? Because he's moving toward the object of his remembrance. Because God remembers. Hebrews 13, verse five. You all probably know one of my favorite verses. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Or in the transliteration there, I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no never forsake you. That's how the Greek reads. All those negatives to produce one holy positive, I will not forget you. The remembrance of God. Verse four, in the seventh month. On the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So now as we move into this next stage of the, of the flood receding, we come to, second thing in your notes, the rest of the ark. The rest of of the ark. The ark rested, and then nearly three months later, mountaintops became visible. Can you imagine? I mean, the ark has been rocking now for 150 days, and all of a sudden, the rocking stops. Can you imagine Noah and the family? They're looking around, the animals, what's happening? No more seasickness, everything's still. Three months, what would you do? See, I'm just dumb enough that the moment it stops, I'd be opening windows going, let's go, <laughs> splash. Noah doesn't do anything. Three entire months go by before the tops of mountains become visible now. If you look down in verse 11 of chapter seven, you note this, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. And now... Verse four of chapter eight, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. So 
It began on the 17th day of the second month. It's now the 17th day of the seventh month, so we know five months have gone by. Five months so far, so far in the ark with the animals as the ark is resting. So we know the ark was five months afloat, and and we understand also that Noah's age is the dating of this whole thing. When you hear this, the 17th day or the first day of the first month, or you hear these different things, it's all related to Noah's age. We'll see this a little further on in verses 13 and 14. Noah's age is what it's based off of. And so verse four tells us that in the 17th month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested, which tells us that it was the 17th day of the seventh month of Noah's 600th year. So that's, that's what we're talking about. But what's really interesting is if you just look a little bit further and consider the following, that the first month of the biblical Jewish calendar is Nisan. Okay, God did that. Later on, the Jews would get their calendar, same calendar they have today, they would draw out of Babylon and they would count the months on that calendar. And the first month, according to the Babylonian calendar, or what would become the Jewish calendar, the lunar calendar, the first month was Tishri. It's what we call the civic calendar, Tishri. How do you know that's the first month? Well, they still celebrate the new year, Rosh Hashanah, in the month of Tishri. So that's the beginning, or what the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah, and that's the first month on the civic calendar. But God said, no, 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 I wanna change that. I wanna make the first month on a biblical, spiritual calendar for you, and it's gonna be the month of Nisan. The month of Nisan is actually the first month on God's calendar for the people of Israel. But note this, Nisan is the first month on the religious calendar, but it's the seventh month on the civic calendar. It's the seventh month, okay? It's the seventh month, are you getting that? Nisan is the seventh month, and the ark rested in the seventh month. And on the 17th day of the month, it'd be really interesting if something happened on the 17th day of the month of Nisan. You know what happened that day? Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. See, Nisan the 14th is Passover. Three days later, Jesus resurrected on the 17th. The ark rested on the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that's interesting. Do you have a little more evidence that maybe that's implied in the scripture? Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) Interesting to me, and I'll tell you that in just a minute. You're gonna have to wait for it. But the resurrection rest of the gospel is now brought to our remembrance millennia before it took place. See, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and our ways are not his ways and there's a difference there in the way he moves and thinks. And for one thing, God is not bound by time so he's always in the moment, always I am. What's happening today is what happened a thousand years ago is what happens you know, in the future. For him, it's all happening at once. And so the day the ark rested, God brought this about, resting on the mountains of Ararat on that same day, that 17th day, yes, of the seventh month of Noah's 600th year, but the 17th day of the seventh month, Nisan the 17th was resurrection day. You remember the gospel embedded back in chapter five? And we looked at that, all those, the 10 names in the line of Seth, beginning with Adam, going all the way down to Noah, how the names 
Their meaning spells out man, appointed, mortal, sorrowful. The blessed God shall come down, teaching. Dying, he shall send to the despairing rest. Comfort or rest. The ark rested on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of the seventh month, just as Jesus resurrected. And so we find our rest in the resurrection. Hebrews chapter four, verse 10 says, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience as Israel is what his comparison is there. And that's an interesting statement. Be diligent for rest. We might say, work hard to enter that rest. Well, that sounds tiresome. <laughs> I gotta work to get to the rest. That's how we do it in the flesh. But the diligent entrance to rest is the same thing as the ark on the seas settling down on the mountain. Noah did nothing to ground the ark. Noah didn't say, drop anchor, Shem, Ham, let's settle the boat. Batten down the hatches, we're making landfall. No, all of a sudden one day it just stopped rocking. All of a sudden, one day, there was just rest as the ark rested. And those of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ understand that's how it works. All of a sudden, one day, you go, I believe. And in the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, we find rest. The diligence that the Hebrew pastor is talking about is not restive, it's restful. It is a restful faith in what God has already done through Jesus Noah experienced what God had already done through the flood and the ark rested in the same way we know Jesus did it all and we find our rest in him. So the ark rested on the mountains. Note that, it's interesting. It says the mountains, plural, of Ararat. It doesn't say it rested on Mount Ararat. It's a region that's being talked about. Ararat is a region and some claim they found the ark. So think about a few of these claims that have been made. Mount Ararat today, where is it? It's in the extreme east of Turkey. In fact, if you look at a map of Turkey, it kind of bulges out at one little spot on the far east side. And in that little bulge, below that, you, you've got Armenia. And above that, you've, or above that, you've got Armenia. Below that, you've got Iran. Is my mapping right? You map people, is that correct? So Turkey actually pushes in a little bit and... Armenia, Iran, Turkey are all there. Well, that eastern section of Turkey is also called Erzurum Kars. It's the Erzurum Kars Plateau. It's a plateau that itself is 5,000 feet above sea level, just the plateau. And then on this massive plateau there in eastern Turkey, there are mountains, and one that is called Mount Ararat today. In fact, there's greater Mount Ararat and there's little Mount Ararat. And then there's some other mountains all around there as well. So that whole region is what's being referred to here where the ark landed, that place in the Middle East or in, in Eastern Turkey. Aussie geologist, Dr. Andrew Snelling, points out on the Answers in Genesis website, he says, there have been many reported ark sightings from a handful of locations in the region. And he writes an excellent article about these different sightings. Here are a few of them. The Ararat Anomaly is one. 
The Ararat anomaly, see a US Air Force recon plane was flying over and took black and white images of the northwest side of Mount Ararat back in 1949. Those images were not released until 1995. They were finally publicized, and there on that side, the northwest side of the largest, greater Mount Ararat, is a large object that resembles a portion of a ship. And people looked at that and went, that's the ark. And expeditions were led to try and find some more proof, more evidence. And of course, if you lead an expedition, you're gonna come back having found something. So people say, this little stick, this little piece of wood, here it is, these are aspects of the ark. Well, then there's a mile below the peak of Ararat, which is roughly 13,600 feet above sea level, and a mile down below that is what's called the Ahura Gorge. An Armenian by the name of George Hagopian, by the way, that was the same name of my high school English teacher, Mr. Hagopian, not the same guy, but George Hagopian claimed his uncle took him up onto the side a mile below the top of Ararat when he was a young boy in 1908 and showed him the ark. And he maintained this claim, this story, his entire life, but when as an adult he was asked to lead expedition back up there to try and find it, he could never pinpoint it again. But he knew as a boy that his dad had shown him the ark up on the Ahura Gorge. Another claim was made by a man named Ahmet Erdogrul, a Turkish guide, who claims that he found compartments from the ark's interior on the south side of Mount Ararat. He took a bunch of photographs in 2008 and he reported them to Noah's Ark uh, Ministerial International or, or Mission International in Hong Kong. And they claim to have made you know, forays in to try and find the ark as well. Nothing's come of that so far. Well, 15 miles away from the summit, of Mount Ararat is a mound called Duru Pinar. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it well, but I'm not Turkish, so whatever. Duru Pinar, in 1948, heavy rains exposed a large arc-shaped formation on Duru Pinar. And if you see pictures of it, it's fascinating. It, you look, that could be the ark. Hey, look, that might be it. A 1960 expedition found only dirt and rocks. But, Explorer Ron Wyatt, if you've heard the name Ron Wyatt, he's kind of the Christian Indiana Jones. I mean, he's been all over the place. He's found all kinds of things. And he went back in the 70s and 80s and he claimed he found an outline of metal fittings for a boat for a large ship using a frequency generator. But not much more has come of Durupanar. And then there's Mount Judy. Mount Judy, some ancient writings, uh, the Quran among them, said that people could still see the ark on Mount Judy there in that plain, still in the first century. In 1953, a German expedition found wood fragments with traces of asphalt in them, which is interesting because might that be pitch? Remember the ark was covered over and all around with pitch? So wood with pitch or asphalt there, interesting. Further research needs to be done. Then there's Mount Suleiman. So another mountain on this large plain already up above sea level. And World War II veteran Ed Davis claimed he saw the remains of Noah's Ark while stationed in Iran during the war. 
Later expeditions claimed to find beam-like rock formations. You can see pictures of this online. Rocks that look like huge beams, perhaps of petrified wood, and people say, might that be the remnant of the ark? And there's a whole lot more. And you can do your research, and you can rabbit trail down there and try and find all of these things and think about them, but they all seem to have their flaws. Every time there's, there's proof or every time there's evidence or every time someone says, we found the ark, something comes along that, that suggests Perhaps not. So we keep looking. Three things to consider about the ark after it made landfall, and, and of course, many thousands of years have gone by since then. Number one, decay. The ark was made of gopher wood, so decay would have a factor. Have you seen the barns in the Skagit Valley? Or on Whidbey Island? I mean, how long does it take for a barn to begin to rot and decay? And then there's repurposing. Consider this, after Noah and his family landed, it would be a long time before they would have trees for wood. So the wood of the ark for fires, for building shelters, for tools perhaps. So the wood of the ark might have been repurposed by a lot of people over time. I've told this story before. We went to Honduras. I took a bunch of students to Honduras on a mission trip years ago, and we built an entire playground, beautiful playground for the kids to play in, and we all, we all thought that we did such such a good thing, it was a heavy effort and got this done in a couple of weeks. And a year later, I took a group of kids back and I said, hey, can we go see the playground, kind of see what we did and see the kids playing on it. We all have visions of what would happen, what it'd be like, and we got there and nothing was left. And I learned a lesson that day that the people in the jungles of Honduras don't really need a playground, they need wood. They had taken the wood to build homes and to survive so perhaps the wood was repurposed. But here's a more compelling thing. The entire region of Ararat, the mountains of Ararat and that whole plateau is subject to massive volcanic activity. Any geologist could tell you this, that Mount Ararat today is a post-flood volcanic structure. That is greater Mount Ararat. It is a mountain that came of volcanic explosion after the flood, much of the mountains of the world would have been shifted and changed and rocked when the floodwaters rose anyway, but Mount Ararat, as we see it today, is a post-flood mountain. How do you know that? Sediment. You begin to dig underneath it. You begin to go down. And if the ark is there, if the ark is there on what we call Mount Ararat today, then it's probably two and a half miles beneath ash and buried in sedimentary layers of the flood. Because if you go down, first you go through, oh, about a mile or so of volcanic ash and material that has built up what we call Mount Ararat, greater and little Mount Ararat today. It's all volcanic. That whole plateau is massive volcanic ash. And so you dig through all that ash and eventually you come to what they call the flood level, which is comparable to places all over the world because there are uh, fish bones down buried deep in a place where there shouldn't be any fish at all. And we recognize that as a flood layer of all the sediment that got stirred up and, and then settled down. And that's two miles below what we see as Mount Ararat today. So if someone says, hey, we found the ark on Mount Ararat, it's unlikely. If someone says, hey, we found the ark two miles below Mount Ararat, that's a possibility. I'm not saying this to shake anybody, but I want you to think about this. 
Will we ever find Noah's Ark? Perhaps. But countless people had to have seen Noah's Ark before the flood, right? Did it change their faith? Whether we find the Ark or not, should have little bearing on our faith. Did those who saw the ark before the flood, did it increase their faith to the point of rest? No. We don't rest in relics. We don't trust in trinkets. I I often say this, when we travel to Israel, our faith does not rest in stones and bones, but on the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. That's where faith is. Faith is vibrant and alive. As Jesus himself said, Matthew 22, 31, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And we're called to a living relationship, not a faith in relics, which is why we don't worship the Shroud of Turin. Interesting, perhaps. Wood from the ark, fascinating to consider. But these are not the things of faith. Faith is the stuff of relationship with Jesus. And relics can be rabbit trails to relationship. Relics can actually lead you away. Relics make you religious. And they steal the closeness of the God who remembers Remember what I said about God's memory, God's remembrance, it draws him near. It's like saying God remembers, God is drawing close now to those who are on his mind. That's relationship, but relics push away. Relics make God distant. Relics come between us and the Lord rather than drawing us close to the Lord. Relics reroute the simple walk of faith in Jesus John 20, verse 29 is why, is why Jesus, I believe, said, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Not to see, you just have to trust. And trust me, the Lord says. Now, some would say, well, Rick, you're just saying that is a cop-out for a lack of facts. No, the facts are all over the place for the scriptures and for God and for all that he's done. It's not a cop-out, it's a buy-in to the faithfulness of God. And trusting a God who's been faithful to me Faithful throughout my life, I can give you evidence after evidence of God's faithfulness to me, of him drawing near, of him caring for me and my family and him being present of God's memory. But more fascinating to me than any of the locational ideas of finding the ark, more fascinating is the name itself. And here it is. The ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat, And the Bible is very clear that it was this region and to point out this region and to point out the date and the time, it's one of those really explicit things. Why does it name the mountains of Ararat specifically? Well, interestingly, Ararat comes from an early Akkadian word, Uratu, and it's literally translated, write this down, note this, Mount Ararat, Ararat is translated, the curse reversed. The curse reversed. You see this kind of thing all the time in the scriptures. The curse is now reversed. Where the flood came and destroyed the world, the ark now rests on Mount Ararat and God begins the process of renewal. The curse is reversed. The mountaintop rest of the ark and the curse begins to be reversed. A restart, if you will, a do-over for mankind. Let's start fresh with this. 
And that's exactly what happens when you come to faith in Jesus and the resurrection. The curse is reversed. You enter into the do-over. There's only one, by faith in Jesus Christ, a restart of a new life, and you cannot, you will not enter rest until the curse is reversed. But when the curse is reversed, grace comes and forgiveness and freedom for sin and real life. So the ark rested. The water was decreasing. And it came about, verse 6, at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. So number three in your notes. We have the remembrance of God and the rest of the ark. Now number three, the ravenous raven. The ravenous raven. Noah sent out an unclean bird. The raven is a scavenger. Perhaps you've seen similar birds, crows in the road, picking at dead roadkill, and then they fly off when you come driving up. The raven loves to feed on the carrion, the carcasses of dead animals, and this raven is now sent out by Noah to see what's gonna happen, and he never comes back. The Bible tells us what he does for the rest of the time, for the rest of the recession of the water. He's flying here and there. Here and there where? From one dead carcass to another. He's just making his way, having a feast. The raven apparently found food, or it would have come back to the ark. The raven was happy in the immediate post-flood world, gorging itself on dead and putrefying flesh. My daughter Hannah on Sunday said, Dad, what about, what about all the dead bodies? You know, he said estimates of 10 to 17 billion people may have, may have, I'm not saying absolutely, it's not doctrine, it's, it's just a, a, a supposition, but may have been on the planet at the time of the flood. What happened to all those bodies? A wash in the flood. Well, I'll tell you what, you'd have one fat raven eating the carrion. The bodies would decompose. Remember, they didn't eat things with such preservatives like we do today, and so bodies would decompose a whole lot faster, and especially there in the water. I mean, it's kind of a, a gross thing to think about, but consider this bird, this raven, set free after all this time on the ark, and it's flying from body to body going, yeah, meat to eat. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 17 says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out. But listen, what the unclean do. The unclean always wants to feed on flesh. Turning your Bibles over to Galatians chapter six for a moment. Galatians chapter six. Galatians six. Galatians five and six, Paul really expresses, explains this so well. This, this contrast of those who are ravenous for the flesh and those of the spirit. And what he says in Galatians chapter six, verse seven, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let's not lose heart in doing good 
for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. In due season, we'll reap. And you're gonna reap what you sow. So the question is, what'd you sow? And I've, I've, is that God calling us? Because I think we ought to answer. Give him a chance to. <laughs> you reap what you sow. And note this. See, I hear everything. My vision isn't that great, but I'm hearing everything. If there's a buzz, Rick's on it. If there's a phone ringing. I love what he says. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And I've given the example. Try this if you'd like a little scientific experiment, but take a nice juicy steak and go sow it in your front yard. Just sow it and give it some time. Three weeks. Then come back and, and see what you've grown. Maggots and infestation and grossness. And it's a great picture because if we sow to the flesh, if we seed the flesh, if we feed the flesh, it's going to corrupt us. If we hunger after flesh things, like the raven going from carrion to carrion, it will corrupt us. Now, feeding the flesh is all about satisfying the sin nature. And we all have the sin nature, and the sin nature wants to get fed. Sin nature loves to get fed. It's why we find ourselves attracted to things that as followers of Jesus, we know we shouldn't be attracted to. We know they're not healthy for us. We know they're bad. It's like me, and I, I confess, cherry Pepsi. Now, I don't drink it like I used to. But every now and then, the flesh wants a cherry Pepsi. I know what it's doing to my guts. You don't have to tell me. Rick, you really should be drinking vegetable juice. I know, but it's not what I want. I would much rather be in the soda aisle than in the juice aisle because the flesh wants it. And it's the same way with the sin nature. It's what lures us and draws us in. It's the old man, the old woman, before we went through the waters of death. It's been a new thought for me, baptism, waters of death getting buried in the waters of baptism, just like the waters of death of the, of the flood and Noah and his family, Peter, remember, made the parallel. Noah and his family went through the waters of the flood and were saved, and so you go into the waters of baptism, waters of death, and you get saved, but when you come out, now you're different. The Bible says that prior to, it's like, it's like the raven sent out. It's hunger for the flesh, but man, when you come through, when you're saved, when you're born again, it's the spirit that gives life. Flesh counts for nothing. But in the spirit, I still am, Lord, attracted sometimes to the flesh. Now, the Bible says that God did use ravens to feed Elijah, 1 Kings 17. They brought him his food. And the Bible also says that God feeds and cares for the ravens, Job 38, 41. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? God is asking Job. God's implying, who does it? Do you do that, Job? Do you feed the raven? No, I, I take care of the raven. Oh, but Lord, I don't think I would have said that because this isn't the raven kind of a picture of a scavenger for flesh and now you're feeding and nurturing and caring for the raven and you use the raven to go and, and feed Elijah? And Psalm 147 verse nine says he gives, gives to the beast its food and the young ravens which cry so God cares for them and Jesus even says this. 
Luke 12, 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And then Jesus says, how much more valuable are you than the birds? Keeping with this picture, I think it's interesting, this picture of an unclean bird, of a ravenous appetite, of an animal which feeds on the flesh, understand that God feeds and makes use of and cares deeply for the lost person. You might say God loves the raven. I was the raven pre-flood. I was the raven prior to salvation. I was a flesh guy. It's after that things begin to change, but God still loves the bird of the flesh. God still loves the scavenger, but in Christ Jesus, lost or found, right? And made new. So in Galatians chapter five, look back at chapter verse 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. In Romans seven, Paul says, that's me. What I wanna do, I don't do. What I do are the things I don't wanna do. And he talks about this civil war of flesh and spirit. You all know exactly what that means. I know what that means. We've all experienced that. And he goes on and says, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh, raven deeds you might say, are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to believers and he's saying, don't be like the raven. Don't feed the flesh. These are the things of the flesh. The flesh is at war with the spirit. And if you feed the flesh, it will be stronger than your spiritual self. Don't go there. And he says, but, but the fruit of the spirit. Now you can measure that is, as you all know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law because it's a work of the spirit, not a work of the flesh. It's what the Spirit does. And he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also, he says, walk by the Spirit. And we're right back to the walk. Flesh and Spirit. The new man, the new woman, walks in Spirit, rests like the ark, like that picture, we're resting down because God causes us to rest. And we're not like that picture of the raven hopping from flesh to flesh to flesh, gorging ourselves on the things of the flesh. We no longer have a ravenous appetite. So ask yourself tonight, what are your flesh foods? What are the things that you desire, still desire in the flesh. How is the flesh fighting against the spirit in your life? You know what it is, I don't have to tell you. You deal with that, I've got my own. I know what my hungers are, I know what my desires are. And I know what happens when I feed those to the detriment of my spirit man. Another way to ask the question is, what kind of meat gets stuck in your teeth? What's your flesh? Noah sends out this 
unclean, ravenous raven. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this is the very next bird he sends out is now a clean bird. And not just a clean bird, but a dove. Verse eight. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark. See, the raven never came back. He just hopped around, eating, gorging, feeding. The dove is not a meat-eating, scavenging bird. Dove couldn't find anything, comes back to him, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. And then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. And so he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. Same dove, sends her out. The dove came to him, verse 11, toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Now, pause there for a moment. You have the ravenous raven. Number four in your notes, we come to the return of the dove. And this contrast, you, you cannot tell me, you cannot tell me that this amazing spiritual picture was accidental of raven and dove, of unclean and clean, of flesh and spirit. Can't tell me it wasn't divinely inspired and intentional. The dove early on in scripture, because you know throughout scripture, Bible students, that the dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes out of his waters of death, the waters of baptism. What happened? Matthew 3, 16, behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And someone pointed out this morning, I think it was Rachel pointed out, isn't it interesting? God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased before Jesus had done anything. Before temptation, before ministry, before sacrifice, before resurrection, when Jesus was just a carpenter's son from Nazareth, he goes into the waters of baptism and he comes out and God says, I am so pleased with my boy. As he is with you when you declare simple faith. Before you've done any great thing for God, the dove comes and lights on the shoulders. This is my beloved, the dove, the dove. I, I love the picture here. And again, you've got the raven picking at meat and then you've got the dove flying out, coming back to Noah and flying out and, and coming back to Noah. The dove in the Bible speaks, we can note three things here. It speaks of the purity of the spirit of God. One interesting fact about doves is they secrete more oil onto their feathers than any other bird alive. And this Oily secretion is, what, is why doves continue to look. They, have you ever seen a really dirty dove? Maybe you have, but it's unusual. Doves usually look pretty good. The, the whiteness of their feathers usually is pretty clean, and it's not because someone's washing them on the side. It's that oily secretion. It protects against dirt and grime and filth. So the dove is a clean animal, a pure picture. And I think that's so interesting because not only is the dove a picture of the Holy Spirit, but oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Bible and the dove secretes all kinds of oil. So again, the picture is perfect. I mean, can it get any more clear? The dove indicates, secondly, the passion of the Holy Spirit. Doves are one of the few creatures in, among all animals 
in nature that mate for life. And if their spouse dies, the dove will actually change its song. They've measured this, where the song of a dove, while it's connected to its mate, is, is one song, but when the mate dies, it actually goes into mourning and will mourn the rest of its life. It will never again connect with another dove. And it will sing a different song, a song of mourning. I think Prince wrote a song about that. <laughs> Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I, I need to be reminded of that, that my behavior can grieve the Lord. I, and I don't say that as a guilt trip thing. I, I know if there are things I do that would make my wife sorrowful, I, I don't wanna do those things. If there are behaviors in my life that, that I can act on, and I know it's gonna grieve the spirit of the Lord, it's gonna bring sorrow into the heart of my God, I don't wanna do those things. I wanna stop doing those things. Because like the dove, the spirit grieves. How much do you think the spirit grieves when we wander off? When as a mate, we, we, we depart. I mean, he hasn't left us, but we can leave him. And the Spirit, man, the Spirit joins for life. Do you understand that? That once the Spirit comes upon you, the once, once he takes up residence within you, that's it. He's with you. He seals us for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1.21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God who sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So he's with me for life. No wonder the church is called the bride. God is passionate. The spirit is passionate for his people. And so the dove is a picture of that, the, the purity, the passion of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, the dove indicates peace. Peace. Romans 8, 6 says, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Listen to me, if you are stressed out, if you're worried, if you just feel like it's all crumbling in around you, you need to set your mind on the spirit because the mindset on the spirit is peace. This is practical advice from the scriptures. You focus on Jesus. You pray. You worship. You set your thoughts on the spirit of God. Peace will come, inevitably. Peace will come because that's what the spirit brings. And note again in verse 11 that the dove came to Noah, came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf, extending the olive branch of peace. My friends, that euphemism goes all the way back to the ark. I was looking online and there are those who trace it back to Greek mythology. Oh no, it was way before the Greeks came along and talked about an olive branch of peace. It comes from this story. From early on in Earth's history, that olive branch, that the dove comes back with the olive branch in its mouth and portrays, symbolizes peace. David said in Psalm 55, verse six, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. So there's something about the dove that indicates peace to us, the passion and the love of God and, and purity. And I love the picture that we see, the, the interaction, the interplay, if you will, between Noah and the dove 
Even that paints a picture for us. If you look at verse nine again, the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Look at what Noah does. He put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark. Literally it says, to himself. And that's what we're called to do, we're invited to do. Take the spirit in, bring the spirit to yourself, into your ark, into your heart. And spirit literally searches the world for those whose hearts are fully his, whose hearts are open to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit of the living God will come in to anyone who will reach out and embrace him. Just as Noah embraces the dove, takes her close to himself, the word tells us. And you know, you can be as spiritual as you're willing to be. You can receive. See, God's already given his entire spirit to you. Do you realize that? You already have. He cannot give any more of his spirit. He's given you his whole spirit. But you can limit that power. You can limit that peace. You can limit the passion and the purity. You can say, I I really only want so much. Or you can reach out and receive all that God has for you, and you don't have to be weird to do it. You just say, Lord, I, I want your spirit fully at work in my life. I surrender this vessel, not to be filled a fourth or filled half. or fill, fill me up, Lord, with your spirit. I embrace what you want to do. I embrace the spirit of the Lord, like Noah did in receiving the dove back into the ark. And by the way, one more thing about the dove. There is a beautiful prophetic picture, and I love this, in the Song of Songs related to the dove and the Song of Songs, this beautiful song of the groom and the bride singing back and forth and their love for each other. And in Song of Songs, chapter two, verse 10, just, just listen, meditate on this. The groom is speaking and he says, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. Do you see the prophetic picture? The vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And I think we're getting a picture here of the groom Jesus calling for his bride. Come on up. Why, Jesus? Is is it now? How do we know it's the right time? Because the winter's over. Right, the dark days are gone, the rain's gone, the flowers have already appeared, the time for pruning is going on all around us, it's harvest time, you might say. The fig tree has ripened its figs. Fig tree, Israel, blossoming in the Middle East once again. The vines have given forth their fragrance. Hey, we are the fragrance of Christ, and guess what? He's the vine, we're the branches of the vine. All of this is part of this beautiful picture that he's painting and he says, arise my darling, come along. And if I'm the bride, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going. I hear the voice of the groom. And then, oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. And the dove, the picture of the spirit. Are you listening to the voice of the Spirit. Because these are the days 
where the dove is speaking and the dove is asking who will take me to themselves so that we ultimately can be taken up with Jesus. So back in Genesis 8, we know that God remembered Noah. We see the ark rested on Mount Ararat, right? The curse reversed. We see the raven go out rummaging. We see the dove returning. And then in verse 12 of Genesis chapter eight, then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. And there does come a point, at least in the history of the planet, where the dove departs and does not return because the dove has found a place of rest. I'm talking about when the church is caught up. That restraining influence, 2 Thessalonians chapter two, will restrain holding back the tide of evil until it's taken out of the way, until he's taken out of the way, until the church departs and the spirit departs. There is a time where the dove goes and doesn't come back to this planet because the dove is at rest in the bride. Well, verse 13 tells us now it came about in the 601st year, so Noah's now 601, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Finally, it's gone. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Now, now get this. Verse four in chapter eight tells us the ark rested on the seventh month of Noah's 600th year. Verse five tells us three months later, so the ark has stopped rocking and Noah waits. Three more months go by and they just stay in the ark and do nothing. Mountaintops become visible. And then verses six and seven say, 40 days after that, Noah opens a window and sends out the raven that doesn't come back. And then he sends out the dove. Verses 10 and 11 tell us he waited seven more days and then the dove is sent out, comes back with the olive branch. And then Noah waits another seven days and the dove finally does not return. And verse 13 indicates on Noah's 601st birthday. So now we are six months since landing. Since the ark stopped rocking, it has now been six months of sitting in the ark. And Noah finally says, let's remove the cover. And he waits nearly two more months on this grounded ark with the cover off. I'm like, what are you doing, Captain? Time to get off the boat. I mean, what, what are they, do they have like, Noah and the family have like a Parcheesi tournament going on that they just can't stop. That's some, some really important thing they're doing in the ark and on the boat. I mean, what does it take? As I read through this and day after day and week after week and month after month, and it's a good thing I was not one of the three sons of Noah because I would have been pulling my hair out, trying to figure out how much longer do we have to sit in this barge with these animals, Dad? Can't we get out? I mean, what's it gonna take to get this guy moving off his big boat? Do you realize it's been now, for Noah and the family, 378 days since the rain started? They have been on the ark 378 
days. I read that and I think some people get comfortable where they are. And that can be a problem. Some Christians get comfortable in the ark. The environment of their salvation. This, this is where I'm good. I'm safe right here. Let's just leave it alone. Let's just stay on the ark. Why, why, why risk it? We saw what happened. Why even go out? We're safe here. Let's stay put. And I guess it's possible Noah was just careful. He's just playing it safe. I think because Noah was a righteous man, it's more likely that the reason he would not go out of the ark, the reason why we're talking 378 days is because Noah was waiting for God to give the word. And God did. Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah. Note, he did not speak before. I think that's interesting. We're talking about 378 days, not only of floods and rocking and sailing and waiting, but 378 days of silence. Last thing God said to Noah was, come on board, come. He closed the door and that was it, not another, at least as far as what we have in scripture. Now maybe there was conversation between the Lord and Noah that we don't know about, but reading the biblical text, not a word. And then God spoke. Verse 16, go out of the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Number five in your notes, I call this the reverse invitation. The last thing God said to Noah, 378 days earlier, the word of the Lord that got them all on board the ark was in the Hebrew, bo, come. Remember we talked about this Sunday, I think we mentioned it last Wednesday as well, it's significant. First time that word is used in the Bible, come. And now the Lord gives another first. He says, go. The last thing Noah heard, come into the ark. And now the first thing he hears, go out of the ark. The word is say in Hebrew, say. Bo, say. Time to go. It was invitation and now, now it's commission. Invitation salvation, followed by commission. See, because the invitation of God is always come, come in, come in through the door of the ark, come in through the door, through Jesus, and be saved, come. But once you've come, and once you've been saved, by invitation, you have salvation, and then there's the great commission, which is always go. And there's a pattern throughout the Bible this way. God invites, God saves, and God sends. In Mark chapter five, interesting story about Jesus and the boys. They land in the region of the Gerasenes on the other side of the Galilee, and here comes the crazy man. Do you remember the story, the demon-possessed man? Absolutely nuts, naked in chains, cutting himself wild, comes rushing up. 
I see Jesus getting off the boat. I see the apostles setting off from land, <laughs> rowing away quickly. And Jesus calls out legion, sets the demon-possessed man completely free, sits him down in his right mind, and they're talking. And then Jesus, after I think calling the apostles back and getting on the boat himself. So now they're all on the boat. They're getting ready to go. And Mark chapter five, verse 18, the man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. What was he saying? I just wanna be on the boat with you. Let me be on the boat. Like Noah, can I stay on the ark? Like the family, we don't need to go outside. It's safe there. I wanna be right there on the boat with Jesus. And Jesus didn't let him. But he said to him, go, go home to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And not only were they amazed, but the next time Jesus returns to the same region, countless thousands of people show up. Because one man heard the commission and he went when he was told to go. That's how it works. Jesus calls the lost, but he sends the saved. And you know the commission that's been given to us. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. You don't have to stay on the ark to stay with Jesus. He says, go, and the next thing you know, as you go, he has come with you. His spirit in you. He, he goes alongside. And some people don't know if they're coming or they're going. And I mean this seriously, that good, saved people are sticking real close to the boat and aren't going and proclaiming what Jesus has told us to go and proclaim. Not making disciples because I, don't, I can't do that. I better just stay on the boat. I better just stay put. You know, around my Christian friends, hey, I'm all about fellowship. I'm all about the church, I love the church. I'm all about togetherness and encouragement and support that comes from being together like we are even here tonight. But you gotta go. If you're not saved, come. If you're saved, go. If you come through the waters of death, it's time to go out of the ark. The curse has been reversed, so go. You know, I, I was thinking about this earlier today that we've done several things here tonight. I knew we would do several things, but we have already done several things here tonight, several moments of great importance as when worship began. That was so important, so significant. Prayer was offered up. Communion was shared. And perhaps during teaching, there was a moment when the Lord showed you something you hadn't seen or, or spoke something to your heart you just needed to hear and take in. But just as important as everything else we've done tonight is the moment we go, the moment we leave. Go out of the ark, he says. And 
note this, he also says in verse 17, bring out with you. Go and bring. Go out, Noah, and bring them out. Go out, believer, and, and bring them out. Encourage, support others who have come with you to go themselves in the name of the Lord. So that's our call, really, as followers. We're goers and we're bringers. We're gonna go out to the lost world and we're gonna bring people with us. Sometimes we gotta drag them, kicking and screaming, to go tell someone about Jesus, but we're gonna bring them. And what I'm telling you tonight is you can be a vessel of salvation for someone else. Just like Noah, you can bring the invitation, but you're not gonna bring the invitation unless you go. You've come to salvation, now go with the invitation. And Noah did, and his very first act was an act of worship, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Thus saith the Lord. Father, I believe you. And here we are. Lord, some four and a half thousand years later. And you have been faithful to your word. These things have not ceased. You have been faithful. You have been consistent, Lord Jesus. Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night, you have maintained this world. Lord, I think about the global warming alarmists and I just point to this verse. You're the one who's got it. And I, I so thank you for maintaining life on the earth. I thank you for being a God who keeps his promises. I thank you that once again, we're in November, Lord, and the season's changing. The colder weather's coming, the rains come, the days shorten. And Father, for any of us who don't like that, we know spring will follow. After winter, the days will lengthen. Life will be renewed. You have done this over and over and over through all history, Lord. And you have shown in your very creation your faithfulness to your promises. And Father, I pray that you'll remind us tonight of that faithfulness to each and every one of us. I, I marvel at this, Father, because when I get to teach and I get to sit in front of my brothers and sisters and I get to look at each and every face and recognize, Lord, that you are faithful to each and every one. I know you're faithful to me. I have that experience, Father, but I, I see and I know and I'm aware of your faithfulness personally and intentionally to each person. I guess I would ask tonight at the end of all of this, Father, Lord Jesus, that you would just remind every individual person here tonight of your faithful hand in their lives. Some of us are waiting, Father, 
We're, we're waiting for promises to be fulfilled. We're waiting for your hand to move and finish what you started. We're waiting to see what you're gonna do next. Some are waiting to, to, to know what their life will be. Others are waiting to get out of a difficult circumstance. Father, you are the one who's faithful. So I'm not even asking so much that you bring resolution to all these things tonight. I'm praying that you bring faith for your faithfulness. And in our hearts, remind us, oh Lord, if you can feed the raven, you can be faithful to me. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.